Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. LAist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, one bright spot at the box office, horror films are making a killing. Plus, actor Jeremy Strong of HBO's Succession fame talks about his new movie, Armageddon Time, and why he says acting sometimes requires accessing your worst potential. I think we all have the capacity for violence and extremity and perhaps cruelty, you know, we we have that in us. But first, a documentary about a robot that had the audience I saw it with in tears. The documentary Goodnight Oppie is about the Mars rover Opportunity. It was only supposed to survive for 90 days on the red planet, but ended up working for 15 years. In spending time with Oppie's designers, engineers, and scientists at NASA and JPL, director Ryan White came to see their relationship with the rover as if they were parents to this far-off child. I spoke with White after the documentary premiered at the Telluride Film Festival. What you're faced with as a filmmaker is you are trying to create human reactions to events that have happened already. And NASA and JPL are shooting a lot of footage of what is happening as people are watching the events that unfold in this film. But you also include interviews with people who are working on the project at the time, and they're basically traveling back in time to recall what they were feeling like. And how did you, I use this word, you know, with a purpose, how did you cast those people? Because they are different people who come from different perspectives. It's very important to note some of them are women and two of them are immigrants because I think this movie has a lot to say about immigrants and women in STEM jobs. But anyway, how do you decide who were the voices you needed to include? I think that was one of the hardest decisions because thousands of people worked on these robots. And so we knew we could never do justice to the entire team as far as representing those faces on screen. Um, What we did is I've never, I I always find the writing credit really interesting in documentaries, um, and I've never, uh, I think since my first film, ever taken a writing credit on my docs, but this one we did because we wrote a screenplay for the film before we ever shot one frame of of film, and uh, the the way we wrote the screenplay is we pre-interviewed about 30 engineers and scientists who played major roles in the documentary. I didn't pre-interview them because I don't like to interview people twice. My producers, Jess and Grace, would do like five-hour Zoom conversations because this was at the height of COVID. And then we watched those 30 interviews. We created a screenplay off of it, but that's also how we cast the film was by by watching these 30 people. And I think in the end, I, I think it's 12 people we have in the film. And we wanted it to be very intergenerational. So I would imagine, you know, there's there's people who built the robots from the beginning that had the idea. Steve Squires is our main character. I call him our Geppetto character. But there's also people in their 20s and 30s that are in the film that inherited this project in some way and played a major role. And yeah, there's one 
Um, Ashate is Ghanaian and uh, Vandy Verma is Indian. Um, and they're both, uh, one's a scientist and one's an engineer um, on the project. They also speak of spirit and opportunity as if they are not machines, that they are, I won't call them sentient beings, but they are, their relationship to them is very much like parent and child. And they talk about the robots in those terms. And that doesn't feel like something that was created. It feels like that is how they saw their relationship to the rovers. Yeah, I mean, I think especially the parents that were involved in the mission saw, I mean, they were. we have a shot in our film of, of a picture of the robot on the refrigerator next to the other children's portraits. And so that's really how they saw them. And one, one thing that I always found so fascinating was the, the lifespan of the rovers was expected to be 90 days, but when they started surviving for years and years and years, the way the, the engineers describe it is that that emotional bond just kept getting stronger and stronger. They had expected, they were prepared for the worst, which was a, our baby is going to go up there and three months later we'll probably die because these, these rovers were solar powered and um, there's a lot of dust on Mars that prevents the sun from reaching the robots. And as they kept surviving and outlasting the odds, the, the emotional bond, the familial bond uh, between these humans humans and their baby on Mars just grew and grew and grew. I think a lot of people think about Mars in this kind of fantastical and not very rational way of like, when are we going to colonize Mars and live there? I think the first order of business is to make sure our planet doesn't die. And there's part of this film that addresses that. So what does the mission tell us about what we have to do if this planet is going to survive. Yeah, the the science that she discovered, and I couldn't have written it more perfectly, you know, her final big discovery is in her final year of life when she's lived for 14 years, and she discovers uh, that there was, well, there was drinkable water once on Mars and perhaps um, habitable life at some point. Um, and so that environmental aspect, I think it's uh, Kobe Boykins, who's an engineer, who says it in our film, like, the, the legacy of these robots and the amount of money we spend on these missions to explore other planets, which I think is a very, that is a very deserved debate on whether we should be spending this amount of money. But the, the science that we can discover from these missions is incredibly relevant to our life on Earth. And Ashate, the engineer from Ghana, he said, from the beginning of time, our forefathers were looking up at the skies and used, used the stars to write a calendar and figure out when to plant. And he equates that to exactly what he's doing. We are exploring other planets from the confines of Earth to make life better on Earth. And so whether, you know, whether we colonize Mars at some point or the moon, these missions, the scientific legacy of these missions um, is incredibly relevant to where we're headed here on Earth. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. That was Ryan White, the director of the new documentary, Good Night Oppie. It's in theaters now. Coming up, Emmy-winning actor Jeremy Strong.
Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Roll Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Actor Jeremy Strong is best known for his Emmy-winning role in HBO's Succession. He plays Kendall Roy, the eldest son of a billionaire media magnate. In his new movie Armageddon Time, Strong steps into the patriarch role. He stars opposite Anne Hathaway and Anthony Hopkins in a partially autobiographical film about family and the pursuit of the American dream, written and directed by James Gray. In this scene, Irving and Esther, played by Strong and Hathaway, are at the breakfast table with their son, Paul, played by Banks Rapetta, who's headed out for his first day at a new school with an attache case in hand. You just want me to be like you. What? You just want me to be like you. No. No, big boy. I want you to be a whole lot better than me. That's what I want. When I sat down to talk with Jeremy Strong about Armageddon Time, we started off talking about the idea of acting as a team sport. Whatever you're able to do as an actor is really a result of your scene partner, because the beginning and end of acting is listening. And you're hanging on to that moment with, with your scene partner like you're hanging on to a precipice, really, because you don't know what will come next and you don't know how you'll respond. So everything depends on what they're giving you. And I think in turn, what you give them uh, uh, gives rise to the next moment. So, so it really is a, a completely connective thing, that elastic band between, between two actors. When you are doing theater, the rehearsal process is dramatically different from what it might be in a movie, unless you're in an extraordinary movie where they have a lot of time. And that is the rehearsal process on a play can last a month. And then there's dress, there's tech, there's blocking, there's all sorts of different kinds of rehearsals. In a film, you may not get that. You might have a couple of hours to do camera blocking. You might not. You might have a chance to run lines. You might not. Even though they're radically different, Is there a way that you can transition from one very different medium to the other without it affecting the way that you're able to work? You know, it's funny. The truth is I haven't done a play in about 10 years now, and I think I would find it very difficult to go through a rehearsal process because because I try to avoid rehearsing whenever possible at all. Uh, I think the, the sort of magical thing about film is that you can actually capture the moment where you make the discoveries and you can actually capture the moment when you're first making tracks on that slope before there are any tracks at all. And in a way, in a, in a theater process, you're just, you're making all those discoveries. And then in a sense, you are recreating them again, a sort of facsimile of those discoveries and, and what is, what can be sort of pure about, about cinema and the idea of 24 frames of truth per second, which, which sort of is the ideal, I guess, um, is that you can, you can at least come approximately close to that. Do you know when it's happening? When you go into a scene that you haven't rehearsed, you know the lines, you know what the scene is Sure, about. you're prepared. Right, you're and prepared. you start at the beginning, 
And then you essentially see what happens, uh, and you don't know. I mean, I think I think it's it's a really vital part of it is to not know. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna whatever. But this is something I I guess I tend to do. But there's something that I read in a book about the painter uh, Munch, Edward Munch, and <clears throat> it said that fundamental to all creation is that it is not about transferring something one possesses and wishes to express but rather about what is expressed emerging as something in itself. It must not exist beforehand, but come into being in the moment it is expressed. So I think that that's an amazing, it's certainly true of painting, in some painting, look at Pollock or something, but I think, it, I think when acting is great, it, 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 it's sort of about that idea, uh, the thing, the lightning in the bottle. Uh, and you can't, plan for that you can't anticipate it and you can't prescribe it and if and if a director can you recognize it do you know when it's happening yeah you can feel it yeah you can sort of feel those lightning strike moments or at least you feel takes sometimes where you sort of lose time and space there were some of those moments in james's film certainly in the bathroom well i'm going to ask you about the bathroom in the car with with my son with Mm -hmm. my sons both of those scenes let's talk about the bathroom scene this is a scene that as a parent your character I think we'll just say he loses it. Yeah. And it's not that he doesn't care for his son, but he is unable to express his feelings in a verbal way. And so he gets frustrated and he acts out. Yeah. Um, And it's a, I think it's a difficult scene to watch, period. It's a very difficult scene to watch as a parent. But your character has to get there. And I'm wondering, how does that happen? Because even if you don't, behave like that, you have to understand what that behavior feels like and where it comes from. How does it happen? I I don't actually know how it happens. I don't actually know how you access that, but it has to do, I guess, with the writing kind of bringing things out of you. But also, I guess I believe we all have all of that in us, right? We've been socialized and civilized and we've learned to behave, but I think we all have the capacity for violence and extremity and perhaps cruelty you know we we have that in us in in our nature and so you know we're we're selective in our behavior but but so it's quite for whatever reason it's quite easy for me i guess to 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 find those things um uh the harder part i guess is is earning the right to walk onto the set in the first place, all the work that goes into that, all the work that goes into, I think, believing what you're doing, believing that you're this person, believing that you're in these circumstances. You know, he's a boiler repairman, and so I thought a lot about this idea of a boiler, you know, that is getting overheated, that has too much pressure, that is dysregulated, and that blows. And I think maybe... You know, if we're lucky, we haven't experienced that in our own families, but most people at least have encountered that somewhere. Um, And it's very, those people are suffering, really, uh, and then they inflict suffering on others. But finding the sort of crucible of pressure that this character is in was really the work. And then then that comes out in all kinds of ways. I want to ask you about early teachers. And maybe they were acting teachers, but not people who talked about technique, you know, Stanislavski versus Grotowski or yeah. no or whatever. Yeah. 
but about teachers who said, this is the artist's job. This is the artist's responsibility. This is the artist's opportunity. We're not going to talk about how you're going to do it, but that artists play a role, and this is the artist's responsibility. Did you have teachers like that? You know, in a way, I started doing plays when I, when I was, I don't know, four or five or something in a, you know, in a, in a recreational way, but it quite quickly took over my life. So before there was any sort of theoretical understanding, uh, in a way, I think theoretical understanding is for the birds anyway, when it comes to this stuff. Um, I outpaced that with just doing, 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 doing. By the time I had teachers, I'd already been doing theater for almost 20 years, but they, I think, radically altered my understanding of what was possible and, as you say, what an artist might be capable of doing. But I had a teacher. I spent a summer with Steppenwolf in Chicago when I was an undergraduate. It was a really profound experience for me. And I met a, a guy there named Austin Pendleton, a great actor and a playwright and a director. And Austin, who had been Phil Hoffman's teacher and who is a really beloved person in the theater community in New York. He taught at HB Studio on Bank Street and classes were like, you know, 25 bucks or something cuz that's and that's all I had. And Austin talked a lot about you know how the how you can't summon flame. You have to rub two sticks against each other and locating the need. What is the need? What is the engine? What is the need that a character comes into a certain situation with? And then really installing that need in yourself and pursuing that need, you know, till death do you part, really. And, and, and if a scene is well written, you can go after that and you will meet with obstacles and, 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 and you know, that something will emerge from that uh, collision. There are generally moments in an actor's younger life or younger professional life when they get something that changes their perspective. And there's two things that might change. One is that actor can say, I can make a living at this based on a certain role, certain part, certain paycheck, I guess. And the other one is not measured in those kinds of terms. It's that I can do this, yeah. that I have a talent for this. Did those things happen to you and did they happen together or separately? Wow. I think, I mean, I'm 43 three now and and I, I think I'm only for the first time and it's still a precarious feeling feeling like I might be able to make a living doing this and and so I don't know that that one is has that happened true humility or, or no that's true, true. Okay. that's true uh, most people would say um, you can <laughs> you know <laughs> I think I think it it still uh, genuinely honestly feels like such an impossible thing to actually get to do uh, and I know so many great actors who don't have the opportunities that I have. So I'm very, I don't take it for granted and, and I work very hard. The first one, you know, I think I recognized that I had a, an, an ability to do this. I think I always felt like that ability maybe was limited, uh, but I had a great desire to push to break my own sound barrier in a way. And it wasn't until I did a play by a great writer named Amy Herzog uh, at Playwrights Horizons off Broadway. And this is about 10 years ago. It's the last play I did 
that play, there was, it's a play about unearthing uh, buried trauma in this character's childhood. And what do I, how do I sort of put this into words? I think until that point in my life, I had, I had felt like I had an ability as a performer and that I could perform plays and perform parts. To me, any acting that is really worth something and that has affected me in a, in a profound way is, is not about performing, it's about being and, and, and lived experience that is real experience that you're really watching someone live through. And I guess that play brought me to the, for the first time, to an experience of that, which requires a certain risking of the void because you can't, as Austin said, you can't summon flame. You can't generate emotion. You can't will those things into being. And so that extra step for me of risking that failure really taught me a great lesson that I've carried into the work I've done since then. But that was a big moment for me. That was actor Jeremy Strong. His new movie, Armageddon Time, is in theaters now. Coming up on this Halloween week, why dark and scary movies might actually be a ray of sunshine for the film industry. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Will Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. And finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. Now, on several occasions, we have talked about movie theaters and how they continue to struggle to sell tickets. While that is still true overall, you are here this morning to talk about one bright spot. What's happening? Well, it's fitting we're talking about this a few days after Halloween. Uh, and we had about 600 trick-or-treaters at our house. I don't know how your neighborhood does. Uh, it's actually an expensive holiday for us. Uh, <laughs> but getting back to the box office, the news is that scary movies are suddenly really popular. And I guess, so to speak, are making a killing at the box office, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, the first movie I'm going to talk about is called Smile. Hi. I know you're nervous. I just want to have a chat. I'm seeing something no one else can see except for me. It's smiling at me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, even Suzanne jumped at that one. Uh, This movie came out September 30th. It has made $94 million already in domestic theaters, and it's probably going to pass $100 million. So that's a huge hit. And then the other movie I'm going to talk about is called Barbarian. This is 476 Barbary, right? Yeah, I'm renting this place. No, I booked it a month ago. Are you sure you have the right place? Yeah. What am I supposed to do? Why don't you come inside and we'll call these idiots? Bad idea. Don't go inside. Yeah, well... (laughs) I'm going to get to that in a second. Uh, That movie came out September 9th, has grossed $41 million. 
Halloween ends, although I suspect it really isn't going to end because this is, I think, the 39th sequel in that franchise, <laughs> and it did very well. It opened October 14th and has grossed $62 million so far. Uh, Pray for the Devil has done some okay business. Terrifier 2 has done pretty well. Um, so it is, you know, it's a good business, and a lot of other movies that are kind of in that middle are not doing well. Easter Sunday, Bros, Ambulance. So it's the rich are getting richer, the top guns, the Jurassic World, but then these horror movies, these relatively low-budget horror movies, are doing extremely well. So any theories about what's behind this turnout? I have a few, but one comes from a friend of mine. His name is Bob Burney. He runs Picture House, an independent distributor. I'm quoting him now. He says, even with a lot of horror films out there, a good one can always break through. Younger audiences are absolutely going back to theaters, and horror plays much better theatrically than at home on streaming. And that's absolutely true. You can't talk back to the screen uh, when you're at home. Well, you can, but nobody's going to listen. And the idea of like a whole audience jumping together or being scared together, you can't replicate that at home unless you have 50 friends come over. Um, The other thing is that theaters, I think, are scary places to begin with. I mean, because of the pandemic, you're a little kind of, uh, you know, Unease when you go in, it feels slightly dangerous or off, off-putting, and I think that amplifies the scares in horror movies. A lot of these movies aren't available on streaming platforms. Smile was originally going to be released straight to Paramount Plus, and the studio tested it, turned out really well. So it's only in theaters, and these are original movies generally. I mean, Smile's an original movie, Barbarian's an original movie. Um, and I will say in the case of Smile, it's actually really well made. So all of those things combined, I think, is what's driving the, the turnout. Plus, I imagine horror movies also appeal more to younger viewers, and they're the ones who are buying the movie tickets. Exactly. And that's a, a demographic that, you know, the studios need to come to theaters for movies to succeed. So, yes, if kids uh, show up and, and it's a little bit surprising, the audience for horror movies is mostly female. It's like 55 to 60% female. So it also brings in a number of women and young women. So you can you, you can clutch your date's hand while you're watching the scary movies. You're joking, <laughs> but that is exactly what happens. That is the dynamic, and, that, and that's what drives that female turnout. All right. Well, horror movies are doing well. Uh, earlier you mentioned big action and superhero movies are doing well. But movies like Top Gun Maverick, The Batman, Doctor Strange, and The Multiverse of Madness, Jurassic World Dominion, they're all really expensive to produce and market. In fact, it can cost... I think nearly like half a billion dollars to make and market films like these. And I have a hunch that these horror movies are a lot cheaper. A lot, 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 lot cheaper. A fraction. Barbarian cost $4 million. Smile cost $17 million. You go back and look, Paranormal Activity cost $15,000. Blair Witch cost $60,000. But what's equally important is they don't cost that much to market. Typically, if you make a Marvel movie, it might cost $250 million to make it and another $150 to $200 million to market it. All the TV ads and billboards and who knows what else. Smile, they spent probably less than $30 million marketing this. When Top Gun came out, they had a little teaser trailer on it. So when the trailer launched, people were like, oh yeah, I remember that movie from when I saw Top Gun. I don't know if you watch baseball, but Paramount put actors in Smile t-shirts, bought them like scalp tickets, front row seats at Mets and Yankees games, and they were standing behind home plate looking very scary. That cost them $1,000 per per game, and those, those photos were all over social media. So yes, 
not very expensive, and it's easy to do niche or digital marketing. You don't have to buy a lot of TV. If people are interested in any of these new horror movies, what would you recommend? And what about older movies if folks want a good scare at home? I would recommend Smile. I am a you know reluctant horror fan, but I thought it was really well made. And if you don't want to go to a theater, I would recommend Ari Aster's um, Midsummer. I think it's a great movie. Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. And the only movie that's given me real nightmares in the last 10 years is called The Killing of a Sacred Deer by Yorgos Lanthimos, who did The Favorite and Lobster. Incredibly upsetting film. Great. I want nightmares. Because <laughs> Don't you? you know what? Don't the, we all? <laughs> the news isn't scary enough. John Horn, our arts and entertainment reporter, appreciate you coming by this morning. My pleasure, as always, Suzanne. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.